there are so many things about this movie that are on the one hand very Argento and on the other hand not Argento at all and as far as I can tell it's the only movie that he's ever made that has an outright feminist statement made in it it's just like murder after murder after murder <laughs> after murder and they're increasingly for lack of a better phrase creative yeah this sort of sums up everything that I don't like I thought the dialogue is so stupid uh, the sound design drives me insane, and it's not tense or scary in any way. I think that's fair. Welcome in, and for the first time in 252 episodes, we're going Italian. Yes, we are. I can't believe it's <laughs> taken us this long. I know. I'm sorry, Seth. Because <laughs> I've said before, I'm not the biggest fan, but that's okay. I know you are, and we've got a special guest who's a big fan. So you guys will lead this discussion as we get into uh, Dario Argento. And his work. But first of all, and by the way, welcome to the Fright Club podcast. She is Hope Man. He's George Wolf. And last time out, we want to thank the excellent group at Fright Club Live. We had a, we were back at Gateway Film Center, where we are once a month, a second second Friday. Yep. For a while, it was the second Wednesday. That's for why I'm years. still confused. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now it's the second Friday of every month for Fright Club Live. And last time out, we did Swallow, and our topic was Housewives in Horror. And I think. Everybody liked the film. I think so, too, which, again, I mean, it's nice. We had uh, a, a few months back, we showed a movie that for the first time in, in six years, I think everyone hated. It was the first time that <laughs> happened, Hagazusa, although we've had some a groundswell team Hagazusa since then. But, yeah, it was good. It's always good now to show one that <laughs> people like, yeah. and they like Swallow, which is, it was it's a great movie. It really yeah, is. Yeah, it and, really uh, is. And it was a fun podcast because uh, there are housewives. There's a lot of them in horror movies. And Seth um, pointed out he probably would have had Wait Until Dark with Audrey Hepburn That's in there. a good he, one. It is a good one. I kind of forgot that she was a housewife. You, you forget that because yeah. she's such a badass. But. Yeah, that was a good one. Well, we can always count on Seth for some good something that we yes. that slipped through the cracks. And we would say that we did it on purpose so we would wait for Seth's comment, but that's not true. <laughs> uh, but thank you for that. So today we are going to celebrate Dario Argento inspired. This is this this topic really was inspired by a program that is coming in July right here in Columbus, Ohio, our home base, the Wexner Center for the Arts. And they are going to screen 12 gorgeous restorations. And we are so honored to have our special guest on here because he's someone that we have admired for a while. He's a writer. He's a poet. So insightful. Uh, please welcome Scott Woods. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Man, we're, we are so, so honored to have you here because we've been a fan of your writing for a long time. And I've known you for a regular column. You get a regular column on Columbus Monthly here in town. I just retired from Oh, it. you did? Oh, no. Oh, I did not know. I'm sorry to hear so that. So he didn't get fired from it like I did. <laughs> no, it's funny. I, just, I literally today just found out I won a journalism prize. <gasps> so. Congratulations! Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Wow. Thank you. Well, I always loved reading that column and always great insight on a number of topics, but through reading that, because I hadn't met you before, found out not only are you a movie fan, but a horror fan. Big time. Big time. I even did a column where I predicted uh, what people would like based on a 100-point survey. So people sent in their survey results, and then the next week's column was me telling them what movies they should watch. Wow. That's genius. That is genius. Thank you. <laughs> I have goosebumps. Uh, I'll send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen it all. 
both you and Hope are involved in presenting some of these films at the WEX. Yeah, which is very exciting. Uh, big fans, of course, of the Wexner Center for the Arts have been for as long as I've lived in Columbus. It's an amazing place. And um, every, you know, a, a couple of times a year, they uh, they pick up a full sort of program of restorations. They're very, very supportive of, of restorations, film restorations. And this year, it is Dario Argento, which is really exciting. And uh, and I know I was uh, super thrilled that Dave Phillippe, the curator there, reached out to me to introduce one. And and how did it come about, Scott, that you that you got on the, the list? He reached out to me as well. And uh, that was an email, right? And so he was just like, oh, I... Uh I don't know how I forgot that you were into horror, but, uh, you know, so that's okay. Uh, but well, you're perfect. We should have had him on here long before. I know it. <laughs> I know it. Well, I totally get then why Dave Philippi reached out to the two of you. There's an, an intro to the to each of the films, which will probably run, he said, uh, to it should run about three minutes. Talk a bit about Argento himself and then about the film in particular. And uh, mine, I'm going to introduce uh, Cat of Nine Tales, and you're going to introduce Phenomenon. Conspicuously, neither one of us picks Suspiria, which uh, y- you might think somebody yeah. would jump at. Yeah. An obvious... You know, thing to be excited about are as a 4K restoration of everything he made because the color, the vibrancy, it's just going to be so great to see. So few of these have I seen on a big screen at all. So it'll be exciting to see that beauty on a big screen. But there are several of these films that if you, especially if you've never seen them before, if you watch them by yourself, oh, no, don't. But if you could watch them with a big crowd of people and be like, wait, is that a monkey? (laughs) (laughs) And I think of all of them, the one that would be the most fun to watch with a group is Phenomena. Well, plus anything, any of the programs really at the Wexner Center are always worthwhile. Yeah, they are, yes. And if you're in the area at all and want to check it out, you can go to the Wexner's website. They've got information on there. They do. Yeah, and this is going to start next month. So looking forward to that. I'm going to let you guys really drive the conversation here because I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, I'm not a big fan. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say anything about people that are big fans. I know and the two of you included, that's it's great. It just doesn't really do it for me. And maybe we'll get into a little bit of that. That's fine because he can be divisive. But uh, you guys pick these. You each have a list of top five. And there's a definite amount of overlap here. There is, yeah. Including in the ones that kind of runners up didn't make the top five, right? Yeah, because there are, I mean, he did so many movies. And really, uh, you know, the sort of last uh, nearly 30 years of his career is probably on the down side. And uh, and we can talk about that as well. But there were four films that didn't make my top five that I thought were absolutely worth mentioning. And one, to me, is the last his last really good film, which was 1987's Opera. Um, and that's got the, the sort of iconic, you know, uh, eye taped open with the needles underneath of it. And it's um, it's got, you know, the birds in it, you know. And it's funny because it's not it's not a Phantom of the Opera, although it's got a lot of elements of Phantom of the Opera. And then about, I don't know, 20 years later, he made Phantom of the Opera. Not that well. So it was it was a, it was a, an interesting idea. But I think that opera is um, really dumb fun, which I think is one of the first things that, to point out. One of the things that fascinate me about Argento is that he started off as a screenwriter, like a proper screenwriter. He wrote, he co-wrote Once Upon a Time in the West. Like he, he was a proper screenwriter. He was also a film critic. I was going to say, wasn't he also a film critic? He so. was. And so I think it's very interesting to me that that when when he became a filmmaker, his plots are almost beside the point. 
Um, and, and really to, I think, to, to really enjoy Argento properly, don't pay attention to the plot. Um, that's a mistake. Maybe that's my problem. I think it is. I think it is. You know, and, and opera is one of those. It's just, it's so dumb, but it's so, it's such a fun movie to watch. The best of his films, those set pieces, the murders are so stunning, so macabre and gorgeous that I think it's really unsettling to a lot of people. And a lot of people have a lot of issues with Argento. And usually it's like, well, it's a lot of graphic violence directed toward women. And I feel like if it's just the directed toward women, that's a legitimate point. If it's the graphic violence, you're just watching the wrong genre. If you don't want to see violence, graphic violence... Maybe don't watch a horror movie. <laughs> um, and and so opera to me is that it's like there are so it's it's got so many of his. It's the last movie with like all of the touchstones, like this weird preoccupation with architecture and really fascinating moments of violence and and sort of the, you know, oh, that you didn't really see what you thought you saw. And also, oh, there's a childhood trauma that's driven someone insane. And then also, um, I mean, uh I just, I just think it's his last great, really Argento, Argento movie. And then uh, and the other one I think is worth mentioning uh, is Four Flies on Grey Velvet. One is one of the really early, very giallo films. Um, and it, um, it's got a lot of, it does a lot of interesting things that the first couple of his giallo films do. And it's got a lot of like, like for real rock music. It's really the first time that he, you know, eventually, of course, he'd work with Goblin and he would do a lot of really rock heavy uh, soundtrack. So I thought that it was that was an interesting thing about it. And then so many of his, especially his early movies, there's like it it all turns like the whole plot turns on really dubious science. <laughs> and this is and Four Flies on Grey Velvet is like the most of all. It's like the most that any movie ever relied on this sort of side plot about incredibly dubious science. <laughs> Just can't get over it. But it's still you know it's a fun movie. It's an interesting movie. Um, and and then the the other one before I turn it over to particularly is Tenebrae. So Tenebrae to me is almost unwatchable, but <laughs> it's not because it's not well made. It's 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 incredibly well made, and it's really sort of gorgeous. And it's just I think it's it's Dario Argento going. No, I'm paying attention, and I know what all of your complaints are about me. And hey, fuck you. <laughs> I'm just gonna ramp up every single thing that pisses you off, and I'm gonna smush it all into this one movie that is about you know about the creative process um and and the thing about tenebrae almost every single one of his films there are uh queer characters important characters in the film sometimes less important characters in the film but in almost all of his films they're very clearly that's what they are it's not like they're coded they're very clearly queer characters gay men have a 50 percent shot of surviving an argento film Lesbians have a 0% shot of surviving an Argento film and a 100% chance of dying horribly. And that's never clearer than in Tenebrae. The the characters, and it's not even the death scenes. I actually sort of like the death scenes. It's the scene in the bar. It's it's so grotesque the way he sets up these characters that I just want to smack him. I think that one's for you. Right. No, I can see that. I Yeah, I, I think that that's true. I think that there's 
there's a lot more conscious thought. I think one of the reasons that a lot of his films work is because they seem like he's a fucked up human being and he's willing to just be all out about it. Like, here it is. Here's all my fucked up in this. Because, you know, what he does, I've read, that he kind of starves himself and he doesn't really sleep for a few days until he's almost hallucinating and that's when he begins to write. So he's really, it's just like his own nightmares. It's like his own sort of Freudian weirdness, which is probably why so much is repeated again and again. And so much of it is unseemly because it's just very deep down. He's not, you know, he's not, he's being quite candid about kind of what's weird about himself, which you can almost admire, I guess. But one there of the was things, a question mark in the end of that. <laughs> one of the things that's so interesting to me about Tenebre then is that the flashback seductress on the beach in the iconic red heels is actually a trans uh, woman, an actress, a trans actress. Yeah. And she's not really billed that way. And they didn't. And you. And I just think that's crazy. It was like, what a, what a fascinating choice to make. And she's great. In that role, it's not as if it's not as if it was like a gimmick casting, right. but it's such an unusual, again, sort of like to to the audience, to the critic, like fuck you, I yeah. will do what I'm gonna do, and you can't tell me I'm not doing it right, and it's just in those ways I find him just fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like a really in that particular film, it seems like a really progressive decision, right? But I, I think that's misapplied. I think that's us projecting onto that yeah. more than anything, right? Like, it's not, you know, it's, he's clearly like, what will mess up this audience's mind the mo- in this moment? Yeah. Right? Yes. And, and that's, that was a choice that, that was today's choice, right? Yeah. That day's choice. He also always referred to her as a hermaphrodite in, in interviews, which is unfortunate. That was yeah. an unfortunate choice. But maybe it was just bad translation. That could be. Let's hope. Yes. <laughs> the other one that I wanted to talk about, because it's, if we'd done six, it would have made the list. And it is your number four on your list of number four is Phenomena. So tell me, tell us what you love about this movie. So Phenomena is uh, way over the top. Um, well, first of all, I should point out that I, I'm a Jennifer Connelly fan, right? You know, to, you know, to some extent. And the setup for this movie is pretty wild. Like it, you know, like many of his movies, it opens with a pretty wild murder out of nowhere in this pastoral scene, right? You know, this lovely countryside and white people making bad decisions and, <laughs> and immediately paying for them, you know. And then, like, there's a monkey, and then there's a girl <laughs> who loves insects, and, and it just has all of these really almost. <laughs> Uh, super, not super. I mean, supernatural maybe, but superpower elements, right? Yes. Like she's like uh, a person. She's like Ant Man, right? <laughs> basically. <laughs> and then there's like you know a monkey, so it's got like a Clint Eastwood seventies movie, right? <laughs> and then there's Donald Pleasance, right? right? You know, and it's just like, oh my god, this movie is a trip. And um, by the time I got to it, I had already seen like Monkey Shines. Okay. Mm. Right, and so I was. This is giving me like hardcore monkey shines vibes, right? Like <laughs> this monkey is in it to win it, you know. So, and um, and while you know it doesn't do a lot of things that some of the earlier stuff does, you know, stylistically, it it it's probably got one of the strongest clear narratives of one of his films. Like you know where it's going, what's happening. So on and so forth. How he gets there is wild, but it has a very clear narrative. It's, it doesn't have a lot of tangents. I've not thought about that before, but you're right. And I think that it 
really needed to because it does include so many absolutely bizarre elements. And also, there's a mutant psychopath murderer. And also, it's like there's so much going on. Oh, and her dad is a massive movie star and her her roommate has posters of him on the I mean there's just it's so packed with weirdness yes um so I think I'd not thought about that before but you're right it is a pretty clear narrative and that that probably is why like if the narrative were any looser you would never be able to accept all of the, you can barely accept them as it is yeah all of this weirdness and, and that's the one that you're going to be introducing at the it wax is yeah and and I'll I'll mentioned that you know because of when this movie was made and when it came out 85 right like you know it's it's hitting like really at the height of this whole slasher thing and so it's not like he's devoid of that genre or what's happening in the field like i have to feel like he's aware of that and this film feels very straight in that way right it, it kind of is a nod to the time i think a little bit i can see that and there i mean there there are a couple of moments that kind of call back to uh, Friday the Thirteenth, and there's mm-hmm. there are a couple of moments that where for the first time I think, I think uh, Lucio Fulci, you can see Argento's influence on Lucio Fulci all the way through, but I think in Phenomenon you can see it backwards. There's mm-hmm. a lot of of uh, House by the Cemetery in Phenomenon. Yeah. So that is Scott's number four mm-hmm. and on our runner-up list. Yes. So we'll jump into the top five that has some. Well, we'll have some big overlap right here because our number five is Scott's number one. And that is from 1980, an American college student in Rome and his sister in New York investigate a series of killings in both locations where their resident addresses are the domain of two covens of witches. This one is called Inferno. It's as if I were constantly being watched. And at times, I think I actually feel a presence, as if someone were in the room with me. Who lives in this damned house? Someone who is waiting. But who? You are being watched. Inferno is intense, to put it mildly, right? It's just like murder after murder after murder (laughs) after murder. And they're increasingly, for lack of a better phrase, creative. Right? <laughs> um, but then, like, the closer to me is where this film really, I just love how this movie ends. Um, you know, the effect with the mirror and death, oh, that blows me away every time. Um, yeah, Inferno is just, how to put it, it's, uh, it does all of the things that I love about Argento. If, if you're into Argento, this film does all of the things that you love, right? Um, but, you know, it, it has less story, right? It sets you up with a lot of story, and then, like, that story just goes away, and it's just murders for, like, an hour plus. <laughs> and then it decides to kind of pick up this story again. And it's, you know, and it's got all kind of the, the typical things, right? The amateur sleuth, the creepy house... Just bodies everywhere, and the kills in this. I mean, if you're into the kills, like they're pretty great. Uh, it's intense. <laughs> it's really intense. Like, and like, if I was turning someone on to Argento, I would not start with this movie, right? No. Like, it's way too much. But, I mean, there's a reason why Inferno is, I think, at most people's top, right? The effects are really strong. The whole theme with 
well, I should say the whole story with uh, the witches and all of that happening and the fact that there's one in front of it and one behind it, so to speak, you know, eventually. Like the, the idea that this fits into some kind of universe is really cool. It is. I love, I think, um, I think that, that this movie takes the, the, his most sort of iconic themes and ideas and, and the, the preoccupations and boils them down mm. in such a contained way. I love the beginning, the, the scene in the basement with the water. Everything that he's ever done with architecture and with like sort of the labyrinthine idea of, of this weird space that you don't expect to be inside of a building. Never does he do it more beautifully than he does yeah, in Inferno. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and he sets you up with that, with that bizarre sort of upside down water world in the basement is the coolest thing. And I think you're totally right about the body count because the, the bookseller next door, it's like they were like, last minute, you know what? We got about six minutes to kill. Why don't we do something just horrible to that yeah. man? <laughs> He's not very important to the plot, but let's just really kill him. Really, really kill him in a nasty, nasty way. And they do. Now, in, <laughs> in looking up this movie, I found a couple of things. Um, James Woods apparently was the original choice for the lead role, but he was already committed to Videodrome. So that didn't happen. And also... Argento had a bad case of hepatitis, and a lot of people say that Mario Bava had a lot of influence on this film, including some directing, not just second unit, but some overall directing of the movie. Interesting. Well, Bava would do as as beautiful a job. I mean, I mean, you know, in what you look at, of course, because he that that was his real essence in the first place, and and a supernatural film would make sense for him as well. Um, I cannot see Woods. He doesn't even seem to fit because Argento really goes with like the handsome matinee idol male leads. And that, plus, God forbid anything keep us from getting Videodrome. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm all happy that he said no to this one. And this is also part of the famous trilogy. It mm-hmm. is, yeah, and it's and the third one. It's just so, so it's really unfortunate. We waited so long yeah. for the third of the the mothers, and it's really weak, really comparably weak. The yeah. first two, Suspiria and Inferno, are so glorious visually. They're so weird. They're so weird. And then when you get to the Mother of Size, it's not weird. Mm-hmm. It's very blandly plotted. It's it's you know like a, almost a police procedural. It's got some elements of the crazies throughout it, which I like, although I didn't particularly like the way it was handled in the in that movie. But more than anything, it just there's no real surreal quality to it. Yeah, I think you waited too long. Yeah, 2007, Mother of Tears, of course, is the is the one, is that one, the third, which I'm not a huge fan of. But so Inferno is our number five, and Scott, that's your number one. So a lot of love there, and that's from 1980. And we'll move up to number four. Oh, and this is the one I hope that you're going to uh, you're going to introduce at the upcoming series. This is from 1971. Two journalists try to solve a series of murders connected to a pharmaceutical company's secret experiments, becoming targets of the killer themselves. Cato Nine Tales. I'd like to talk to you about the death of Dr. Calabresi. Our photographer even managed to get a shot of the action. It's as if somebody had pushed the poor bastard out of the train. <laughs> My friend, the photographer, he's, he's dead. Not a Tootsie, the Boston daughter. I don't like your manner. <laughs> I'm not crazy about yours either. Let's make peace. Take me out of here. Whoever it is is getting desperate. When somebody has committed four murders, 
he won't hesitate to commit the fifth. So his first three movies, Giallo, and they all have their they have the quote animal titles, and mm-hmm. in all three, the animal has absolutely nothing to do with anything <laughs> at all. Never more the case than Cat of Nine Tails. <laughs> it's like one toss-off line by Carl Malden mentions the Cat of Nine Tails, and then that's it. The reason that I I picked this one. Uh, is because I think it's an underseen gem. People don't really care about this one. It's sandwiched in between. So, uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage has that unbelievable opening set piece with the glass in the in the art gallery. Yeah. Just you're like you know, and I can imagine if you're seeing it the first time, like, oh my god, what am I seeing? Who is this person? There's a lot in that first film that is just amazing to watch. And then and then he made um, Cat and I Tales, which is a lot closer to like an Argento Hitchcock. Uh, it's got it's still got a preoccupation with architecture, but it's very like linear and gray and cement. And then almost all of the characters are men. So uh, they're also, you know, they're all wearing bad 70s suits. You know, what I mean, it's like it, there's a lot of it's, it's fairly colorless, which I think is one of the reasons people don't tend to. Um, I know it was popular when it came out, but I think it's it's not it's one of the reasons why it doesn't tend to like bubble up to the top and people remember Argento films. Um, I like it. Uh, I like it for a couple reasons. I think it's funny. I think Carl Malden is hilarious. I think the fact that Carl Malden is in this movie is yeah. hilarious. Yeah. You know, you're watching it and going, didn't I see you in uh, um, <laughs> A Streetcar, a named, streetcar Desire. named Desire? <laughs> it's crazy to me. But I think that, that Argento does fascinating things with this movie. There's, You've got the two, the pair, two, like, not really father-daughter, that's Carl Malden's. Yeah, Carl Malden, uh, he has adopted his niece, his little girl. She calls him Cookie because he's so sweet. And they're just the picture of adorableness. But then at the same time, the, at the Terzi Institute, where all the murders are happening, the, the man who runs the Terzi Institute has a very unseemly relationship with his adoptive daughter. I just love whatever he's doing with that, that he's showing us these two different situations. I think that's really fascinating. I also love that most of the murders happen to men. I love that. You don't find that in any of his other movies. There's a scene in the cemetery that is, I find, absolutely hilarious. There are so many things about this movie that are, on the one hand, very Argento, and on the other hand, not Argento at all. And as far as I can tell, it's the only movie that he's ever made that has an outright feminist statement made in it. When Tercy's daughter says, oh, they, they realize that she's got a weird relationship with her dad, and so suddenly she becomes a suspect. She says... Um, oh, that's the Italian logic, isn't it? Uh, whore equals liar equals oh, yeah. murderer yeah, yeah. is the, the one and only feminist statement that's ever been made in Argento film. So I gravitate toward that as well. And then also another weird thing. I'm like, what is the deal with milk in Italy? They just bring <laughs> it to your door warm and leave it there and then you don't ever refrigerate it? I don't... It's, anyway. And they try to poison you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this sort of sums up everything that I don't like. I thought uh, the, the dialogue is so stupid uh, the sound design drives me insane, mm. and it's not tense or scary in any way. And I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair. George, I think that's completely fair. Um, to me, this movie, no shade. It's on my. It's in my top five, but mostly because of its execution, right? Um, you know, it, it's a pretty slow burn for a while, even with a murder. It's still, it's still a pretty slow burn for a while. And uh, and it, and it's way more police procedural than mm. than probably any of the films 
ever, <laughs> right? It's like yeah, I think so. Locked into that as a device. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's in my top five, but mostly because of Malden and the execution and and the you know as you described the relationships, the dichotomy of the relationships. Yeah, like yeah. that's those are cool things. Like. That's I feel like that's the writer in him. Yeah, right? I think you're right, and and it's I think that a lot of times the the murders themselves are not all that. I mean, in terms of Argento films, that interesting, but it's got a weird almost action chase sequence across, you know, across roofs and things that I it's very unlike him that I find very interesting, and then yet at the same time it turns into you know uh, you know I'm secretly a maniac, right? There's, there again, there's dubious science. Um, there's and then the, 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 they're only really, aside from the little girl, two female characters, and both of them are wearing these horrible wigs the whole time. I'm like, who chose that? What's going on here? Or the 1971. You never know what's going on in 1971. And all, but... that, all that police procedural was a good precursor because both Carl Malden and James Franciscus went on to do 70s uh, cop shows. That's right. We on, didn't even mention TV. James Franciscus, James Franciscus, yeah. Right. He was That's a big right. 70s, mainly on TV, but mm-hmm. a big 70s actor. So that is Cat of Nine Tales, our number four from 1971. All right, we've already talked about uh, Scott's number four, right? So we go up to our number three from 1970. An American expat in Rome attempts to unmask a serial killer he witnessed in the act of an attempted murder and is now hunting him and his girlfriend. It's the bird with the crystal plumage. There is a dangerous maniac at large in this city. Last night, a blonde, 28, lived alone. The press are beginning to put two and two together. They think they see a link between the four murders. I feel that I'm getting closer to the truth every minute. That's why he's trying to kill me. This damn thing is turning into an obsession. So, Crystal Plumage uh, works for me uh, because it, it... To me, it really kind of defines Argento very early on, right? So, for instance, like to me, Argento composes films like a poet. And as a poet, I'm speaking from experience here, right? And so there's a focus on moments and really kind of uh, blowing those moments out, right? As a poet, what you do is you take a moment, it's very mundane, very everyday, typically. You take a very mundane, everyday moment and then you ascribe qualities to it. And so the thing is still true, but it is not real. And that's how I describe pretty much his entire cinematic style, right? So it's, um, it's not honest, but it's true. The things in the scenes happen, but they're run through these lenses, these color lenses, these architectural lenses, these political lenses, these Italian lenses, <laughs> and they become something else. They, are, they still happen, but maybe they didn't really happen that way. And that's really where he, for me, really kind of shines. Um, it's surrealism, but it's true, right? Um, and he's blowing out reality with sound, with color. Sound, particularly, which is very fascinating, considering how much dubbing is in these films, right? Yeah. Like all of them, right? Yeah. So. Um, angle choice, right? Oh, no, we're going to shoot the back of someone's shoe for several seconds, right? <laughs> like, this kind of thing. Um, and so Crystal Plumage does 
all of that very well, right? Like it's almost as if the critic in him is kind of sitting on his shoulder and you know, kind of guiding that a little bit. And the whole thing about the opening with the uh, with the gallery and like, what gallery opens like that? What gallery has like two glass? Like, why do you have to go through a maze to get into? The, you know, it's a whole thing. Um, the voyeurism, which is a big thing in his films, is is pretty much the setup here, right? And um, he has very interesting commentary on art. Yeah. <laughs> when he goes to visit the artist who, <laughs> who eats cats. What, is he, what does he have against cats? I don't know. <laughs> He's clearly a dog person. But, um, and then I don't remember. This one I don't remember. Was Goblin music in this movie? No, this is uh, Morricone. Okay, yes, okay. Yeah. I have a goblin comment, but I'll save it for a later. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's funny because, of course, you know, uh, Morcone is so well regarded, and rightly so, but I feel like, because he also did um, Cat of Night Tales, and I, I just don't feel like they add much, mm. you know? Goblin does. Right. Goblin is like, really, you've never heard anything like it, but you've never seen anything like Suspiri. And the two together are like, oh, this is glorious. And and I just I don't. Yeah, I, I don't feel like the score for the first couple movies did uh, the kind of work that eventually they would for his films. I do love Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Well, this is credited. This movie is credited for really kicking off a big boom in Giallo films. And it was so popular in Italy, it played in one Milan theater for three and a half years. Nice. That's popular. It is. And it's interesting. It's not as if it was the first Giallo. Right. Um, and and uh, I think actually Mario Bava probably had the most mm-hmm. most popular Giallos coming jelly? coming into this. <laughs> and what I think is, is so interesting about how the he just redirected the entire genre. But if you think they're crime thrillers which is the most plot-specific of any kind of film you can ever make, the most meticulously, like Zodiac, the most meticulously plotted films of Mm. all time. And he just was like, fuck that, no. And everybody else went, ooh, fun. And then they just, the whole genre just followed it. It's fascinating. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. That's a good point. It's a trip. Even his police officers, like throughout films, are not like police officers, right? No. They're just completely off the books and not doing procedures very well and hiring psychics and all kinds of things. They're just they're all of his police officers are off the chain. I like in this one there's there there are moments of comedy, particularly with the artist, mm-hmm. that you don't he he seems to lose that l- the longer he goes on in his films. I mean, he kind of loses. I, you get a little bit of it in Cat of Nine Tales. There's this shaving sequence that is, and and actually I think that the two. You know, they play off each other in a little bit of a comic sort of foil sort of a way. But I, I do think, especially the whole cat thing, the whole thing with the artist, there's a lot of comedy there. But one of the things that he establishes in this movie that he really returns to often is the idea that you can't trust what you see. Mm. Um, and there there are so many characters throughout his film where, like, they're misremembering something. They know they are. They can't quite put their finger on it. And then what I love about then the second film is that, the there, you know, there are two newsmen Cat of Nine Tails, and the newsman who can see fine is always wrong. He like his instincts are terrible. The newsman who can't see at all, he always knows what's going on. Which all of it seems so weird to me from a filmmaker who doesn't care really about anything except what you're looking at, right? I mean, the, he's very visual. What what he's saying in his movies, uh, you don't trust your eyes. It's well, fascinating. That, that goes in hand in hand with what you were just saying about the difference between truth and honesty. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you know, and, bec- 
you know, I know he gets a lot of these Hitchcock comparisons, especially around like these early films, and that just maddens me. Right? <laughs> like Hitchcock is very meticulous, you know, story first, all of these things, and Argento is none of those things, right? Like intentionally by design, none of those things. No. Yeah. And that is number, and that's also part of the uh, trilogy, the Animal trilogy, correct? Yes, his first three outright jolly. Uh, um, yep, they all have nothing to do with animals, but they all have animals in the title. <laughs> <laughs> Good enough. That's uh, our number three, and Scott's number five, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage from 1970. So move up to our number two, and this is Scott's number three. So I love all this overlap, and this is a classic from 1977, an American newcomer to a prestigious German ballet academy comes to realize that the school is a front for something sinister amid a series of grisly murders. The original Suspiria. Well, what is it? I just wanted to talk to you about some of the things that have been happening here lately. It's useless to try and explain it to you. You wouldn't understand. It all seems so absurd. So fantastic. All I can do is get away from soon as possible. How come I never noticed that before? Susie, if they don't leave, where do they go? Yeah, I think I've said before on this podcast, I have a very distinct memory of this because it came out in 77. I was a teenager. I was not yet old enough to see R-rated films, but I went to a lot of movies and I would see the poster. And the tagline on the poster said, the only thing more frightening than the last five minutes of this movie is the first 87 or whatever. And I thought, ooh, that's some <laughs> shit right there. And then by the time I got old enough and saw it, I, w- I was so disappointed. Aww. I was just so disappointed. So yeah. um, that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm a much bigger fan of the remake from a few years ago. But I get, I totally get why this is regarded as such a, a seminal um, film in the genre. It was really his first non- Giallo film. It was his first real supernatural film. Of course, it was co-written by uh, Daria Nicolodi, and it was such a departure. He kind of, I think, it was working toward it because Deep Red is the one just before this, and it, the visuals are so off the charts, and the the story is so almost surreal that it wasn't a huge leap to this. But the fact that this is just an outright sort of um, fractured fairy tale, really, and that that's what it looks like. The and I think like a lot of people. I didn't see Argento's films in order, uh, and this is the first one that I saw. It's just not like anything else ever. It's so bizarre and so gorgeous. And I remember what I remember the most from the first time I saw it is I couldn't figure out why nobody's lips matched because I was not familiar with the idea that most uh, genre Italian films, they dub everybody. Uh And I didn't know that, but what I knew was we got to Udo Kier, Udo Kier shows up, and I knew him mm-hmm. from Dracula and Frankenstein, from the um, uh, Warhol. Warhol films. And all of a sudden, he had an American accent, and I'm like, what the hell? What is going on here? <laughs> but, you know, in time, I, I love that about, about especially this one, because it just adds to the surreal quality of the film. The murders in this, in this one, you know, the razor wire... And you just don't think about it. Why is there, is there like a moat of razor wire inside the building? How did she fall into these 
what is happening? Don't even think about it. Let it go. Because it, look, it's on her eyeball. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, everything about the murders in this movie, so glorious. Um, and I think this is the one where he established, like, this reputation for killing beautiful women. And I don't want to give the guy a pass, but there, there's only women in the movie, right? Yeah. There's like there's one guy. They kill him, too. You know what I mean? The, all of the villains and all of the victims and all of the heroes, they're all women in this movie. So, uh, in a way, I kind of got to... I got to give him a pass on that. But um, it is. It's I mean, the the colors of it, the the way uh, the architecture of it, it's really um, everything about this movie is just glorious to me. And we were talking earlier about Goblin. This is the one that Goblin does that very iconic score for. Yes. So a couple things. Um, I first saw this actually very late. Um, I think I had probably seen another one of his before that. But I don't remember what it was. But I do remember seeing this one at a 24-hour horror marathon. So I saw it on the big screen mm-hmm. and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, while George, I'm gonna I'm gonna really lean towards you in this one. <laughs> I was like, what? I don't know if I'm feeling this. Like, this seems dumb to me. Right? <laughs> like, it's a ballet school. I'm like, oh, this is not what I signed up for. You know. So, but. Um, but like the scenes and the colors and the whole palette of this thing yep, is just mind blowing and getting, I, I feel really, uh, fortunate to have gotten to see that on the big screen first. Right. Um, and I think I will probably go see it again in the series when they show it again. I, I would really love to see that palette blown out yeah, I know. with a remaster. Right? I know. That's going to be mm-hmm. amazing. Um, but also, yeah, Goblin. Can we talk about Goblin real yes. quick? Because it's not so much that <laughs> Goblin is Goblin. It's, it is what it is. <laughs> all right. But the way that he uses their music and rock music in general in his films is very weird. Like he uses these really hardcore songs when nothing is really happening. Mm-hmm. Right? Like um someone's trying to like, you know, the heroine's trying to like get a phone through the top of the door and she can't reach the phone so she can call for help and there's like this hardcore rock <laughs> and, it's like, and I'm like what? And Inferno does the same thing like yep, yep. dude is like you know in this ruined basement just kind of looking at things and there's just hard rock just I'm like nothing is happening right now <laughs> absolutely nothing and I'm like what is the logic there? I don't know if anybody's ever asked him that but I that that's my first question. I feel like very often, and and um, I think what makes me think of this is is a scene in in Deep Red that actually has nothing to do with music. I feel like that there are times where he's got a scene that has to happen to move the plot further along, mm-hmm. you know. And so he just it's like he goes, well, what do, what do we do to make this more interesting, you know? Because mm-hmm. it's it, so often the music is absolutely uh, uh, just discordant. It's the opposite of the tone yes. you would expect that he's trying to create. Yes. Um, and at the same time, all of a sudden, I'm mesmerized by a you know a scene that doesn't amount to much but has to happen for us to get from A to B. And also, apparently, he would blast that music at you know <laughs> full volume on set to just make everybody creeped out oh. to get the whole sort of sort of vibe that he was looking for. But I, but I agree that the music sometimes is just so disjointed yeah. about what is going on. It's jarring, man. It comes out of nowhere, lasts for the whole song. You know, it's just like, what is happening right now? And it is funny in Suspiria because you would expect, uh, because of the setting, uh, mm-hmm. that you would expect like maybe classical music. Yeah, like they're, they're yeah. ballerinas, it's Germany, they have no like limit of classical music available to them. And nope, 
That's not what you get, which is fascinating. I do think it's worthwhile to spend a second talking about Guadagnino's remake, though, yes. because it is a masterpiece. Love it. You know, and it's one of those films where you, you at, the re- at first you're like, why would somebody remake Suspiria? That's just dumb. And then when he did it, it was so respectful. It was like, I'm not, I'm not stepping on anybody's toes. You know, you had that movie. That movie is great. I'm taking a different color palette. I'm making it very political in its themes, and the people actually dance. They danced themselves to death. You know, it's like everything that he did, every choice he made, I thought was perfect for the movie he was making and also a really class act in terms of everybody who loved the original. Yeah, to me, that movie is the perfect example of why you do make a remake because Mm -hmm. he clearly had a different vision for it that I thought worked. I thought he brought so much more depth to the story. Yeah, that's, that's a textbook example of why... You do do a remake. And as I've said many times, I think one of my favorite things about Guadagnino's is that the only males in the film are completely pointless and Mm -hmm. useless. And they're They're toyed with. They're toyed with. And the only male in the film that has any purpose or meaning at all is played by a woman. Mm -hmm. It's played by the god that is Tilda Swinton. (laughs) Um, And so, I mean, all those choices are just like, you know, tip of the hat to you. And, you know, arguably, well, maybe not arguably, but, like, you know, the men in Argento films are generally not really good at being men, as yeah. we understand men, right? <laughs> you know, they try to be masculine, and but they're kind of weak, and they try to be smart, but they're not very smart. It's true. And, um, and I thought that the remake, you know, kind of just understood that mm-hmm. and just kind of but tweaked it, right? Because it's true the the especially in the you know especially in the three mothers films it's women who are pulling all the strings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 The original Suspiria from 1977. That's our number two and Scott's number three. So we've already talked about Scott's number one. We talked about that earlier. So we'll move up to our number one, which comes one notch below for Scott at number two. And this is from 1975. A jazz pianist and a wisecracking journalist are pulled into a complex web of mystery after the former witnesses the brutal murder of a psychic. It's deep red. The murder is a schizophrenic paranoid. Anyone who kills with such friends surely does it in a state of temporary madness. And when he kills, he must recreate these specific conditions. A man in a brown raincoat walking away from the building. You're doing messing around with this business anyway. I told you to stay out of it. There's somebody in the house absolutely trying to kill me. What I saw was a reflection in a mirror. I saw the face of the murderer. movie is so insanely weird it's so fun of course you open you open in a kind of very argento sort of way with this you know this actually it reminded me a lot of scanners which of course i saw this movie long after i saw scanners so i got it backwards but still that's what it reminded me of is is like this telekinesis telepathy sort of conference everybody's around this psychic and she all of a sudden she she picks up on a maniac in the in the audience and she can't get this person's thoughts out of her head and there's uh we haven't even mentioned yet there's the the 
point of view. There's the killer's point of view, which um, oh, yeah. of, of all of the Argento-isms that have been stolen by other filmmakers, really, you know, quite successfully, that's got to be the, the most it's obvious. Huge, yeah. Because yeah. He, he really, he may, probably didn't do it first, but he did it all the time. And yes. he did it really, really effectively. And, and this is, it, it's done really effectively in this movie because the whole film throws you off as to who is actually the villain. And my favorite, one of my favorite things about this movie is that at, at a certain point you figure out, the whole movie figures out, we know who the villain is. But if you're watching, you're like, no, it isn't. It can't be. It can't be that guy. Now, Argento movies, a lot of times you'll be like, yeah, whatever. Plot, schmot. But in this one, he actually circles back. No, that's not the person. But look how we smash his head. It's so fun. And it's so fun. The scene on, on, this, um, on this fountain where I mean, this movie is just so gorgeous. It's so weird. And then the scene that I was thinking about earlier—that was the first thing that made me think about how he uses a, a soundtrack. There's a scene where where our lead um, uh, has to talk. So it's actually um, David Hemmings plays the lead, and he's got a yeah, call from, from Blow Up. Right. I think those two movies, those two movies talk to each other a bit. Mm. I definitely think so. I think a lot of I think a lot of Argento's casting might just be. Well, there's like a an American actor on the skids. Maybe he'll come be in my movie. I really think that this was an intentional, specific choice. But uh, there's a scene where he gets in touch with Daria Nicolodi. This is the first film that she did with Argento. So she doesn't die. Because <laughs> <laughs> the longer they're together, the worse she has it in his movies. Yeah. Anyway, he's got to get in touch with her on the phone. And they've got to decide to get back to their, like, they, they, they were together. They've separated. They have to get back together. And, and so she's at work. She's a journalist. And so you've got all these newspaper machines going on behind her. And then he's randomly out of nowhere at a coffee shop. And there's this constant blast Right. Of the espresso machine. Just loud, just <laughs> loud for no reason. No reason whatsoever. But you're so distracted by it. And it's like such a memorable scene. And one of the, it's one of the reasons I love it is because, he, you know, he's just got this scene where they have to call each other and they could just be both sitting at home on the phone. And instead, he makes it this incredibly sort of uh, busy, this, you know, uh, unsettling, disturbing scene of all of this loud noise. And I love that about I love that about him. I love that about this movie. And this also has a score by Goblin. Does. Was, yeah, this is the first time they worked together. Yes. Um, yeah, I just, I mean, I, I just find this to be, and, and I, to me, like, as I, as I said, I think it was, the, it was the perfect step from true Giallo into the supernatural films that he was going to make because it, they, it was just so lavish in the production design. I think the only thing I'm going to add is, <laughs> okay, so for me, Deep Red is perhaps the creepiest of the films, right? Like, that little puppet and just oh like, yeah oh my god right <laughs> like when that thing's coming at you just like oh my god <laughs> um, but it's just creepy and a lot of his films are you know they're dark they're this they're that he hasn't seen a wind machine that he doesn't like you know <laughs> but but this one just had creep all over it you know? yeah there's that moment with the like the lizard mm. and uh, you know there's this little girl who's you think oh well she's Look what she's done to that lizard. She's clearly going to turn out to... Nope, she's just a little girl. She's just a little girl who kills lizards uh, for the fun. Uh, you know, she's actually going to be quite helpful in a minute. There are all these, like, strange... <laughs> and the thing about the puppet, purposeless. Yes. Like, it comes out of nowhere. It goes, like, why is that Why is that puppet in there? Well, because it's creepy as fuck. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I think that... 
uh, yeah, I just think I just think he's he's uh, top notch in every in every of all of his elements in this movie. Well, according to Argento himself, the original draft, the first draft of the script was over 500 pages long. Wow! And it was his his father and his brother that convinced him, no, you got to cut that, <laughs> <laughs> and got it down. Uh, Deep Red, our number one, and Scott's number two from 1975. Uh, our list of favorite Argentos, and that leads us in again to talking about the Wexner Center presentation retrospective mm-hmm. that's coming up that you guys are going to be involved in. Um, you're going to you're going to introduce and talk about Cat of Nine Tales, and you're going to do Phenomenon, and everybody can get more info if you're in the area. I know you, you'd love to see the biggest crowd possible. Everything oh yeah, at, uh, the Wexner Center for the Arts uh, online. And I, I believe it kicks off on July fifth. I think it kicks off on July fifth with the bird with the crystal plumage. And then the Friday is me with Cat of Nine Tails. And then it doesn't follow exactly in the chronology after that. It does right. skip around a little bit. And it, it's going to show a lot of films from his early years, like the obvious ones. He's gay, but they also pick some, pick up some from the, the later years that are worth watching. And then there's the one and only non-horror film that's in there, which is the only one of his movies I've never seen. So I may just have to go, even though I don't even know I want to see it. But <laughs> <laughs> but I'm kind of pathological about these kind of sort of completists. So I may have to go anyway. Um, but yeah, I'm, um, I'm most excited, I think, to see Deep Red on a big screen. I've never seen it on a big screen. Same. And, you know, look, I, <laughs> I'm i just going to keep leaning into Inferno, um, Suspiria. You know, I'm real eager to kind of see those. Even though I've seen them, I'm real eager to see them in that way. And I'm real eager to see to see people seeing them. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think that that would be fun. I'm not sure. Well, we saw, I have seen Suspiria with, we've seen Suspiria with a crowd. Um, but most of these, I we haven't. We just saw them alone at our house. Uh, or, you know, in Tiffin, Ohio by myself uh, <laughs> when I was a kid. So I am eager to see how how a crowd reacts. You know, I'm eager to see if they laugh, you know, if it's like, let's have fun with this or if they're like shocked by it. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I feel like I'm really hopeful that people will enjoy, like just find the joy in Phenomena. For me, that's the one that I'm most looking forward to seeing with a big crowd of people because it's just so nuts. Yeah, and I think, I guess that's part of our job, right, is to kind of give them right up front that little, hey, mm-hmm. take your thinking cap off, right. you know, <laughs> bear in mind, you know, if you want to talk about product of your time, think about product of your time, you know, so, <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to, to see a f- several of these with people. Well, if you need any info on the program, it's at wexarts.org for all the information. Love this. Uh, Scott Woods, let us know where we can find you online. Anything else you got coming up? What's going on? Well, I do so many things outside of writing, right? But um, I just direct people to scottwoodswrites.net. Um, I'm on all the social medias. I'm real easy to find. I'm the only black Scott out there. <laughs> <laughs> just look for the Doctor Who scarf. You'll be fine. Um, and then I run an organization called Streetlight Guild, which does a lot of cultural programming in Columbus. And so that's just streetlightguild.org. We're doing a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Well, as always, we urge you to, to seek him out. You're a tr- tremendous writer. Always uh, love to read anything you write. And you can catch us on all the usual socials, madwolf.com. You can find us on Twitter. It's at Fright Club Pod. And we'd love to have you join the exclusive uh, Fright Club only group on Facebook. That's I know right. it's taken me this long to, what? to promote it. What's going on? I'm slacking off here. And just that's Fright Club Podcast on Facebook. Just send a request 
we'll get you in there. That's that's a lot of fun. And then on Facebook, a regular Facebook and Instagram, we are Mad Wolf Columbus. So looking ahead to the next time, we're going to do a podcast. We're going to be back uh, at Gateway in front of that crowd for Fright Club Live. Yep, on uh, Friday, July the 14th, we're going to show Takashi Miike's The Happiness of the Katakuris. So, and if you're familiar with Takashi Miike, you might be excited to know this is his weirdest movie. <laughs> and that's saying something. It is. There's, there's. Have you seen Gozu? I have. Gozu. <laughs> this one has claymation. It is, uh, it's a musical. It is a full-on musical. Uh, it's it's nuts and it's super fun and our topic is going to be lovable losers in horror movies. Lovable losers. Is that where I come in? Is that where you have me <laughs> along for the ride? So that should be fun. Uh, by all means, come by uh, and make it for Fright Club Live. It's always a good time. We start with a little happy hour, you know, yep. a little drinky drink, a little, little fun. And then we uh, tape the podcast and then we show the movie. And then, of course, we love to get some reactions uh, from everyone after the movie, especially the people who haven't seen it. Yeah, and we add that. This to the will podcast. be a fun one to get reactions to. It will to, be yes. a fun one. So look forward to all that. Uh, keep in touch with Scott. Keep in touch with us, Scott Woods. We cannot thank you enough. This thank was a you blast. so much. Oh no, thank you. It was an honor. I love to get your knowledge and uh, your insight to uh, Argento and everything else. And look forward to the, the program next month at the Wexner Center for the Arts. So until next time, she is Hope Mad. He's George Wolf, and this is the Fright Club podcast. Stay frightful, my friends. Yay! <laughs>